we come this morning to a consideration of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is the chief focus of the book of Hebrews, and it's a central message uh, to the book, the central message of the book, we could say, is the superiority and supremacy of Jesus Christ to the Old Covenant, with all its types and shadows. And among many who have studied the book and have written about the book, there are some who think that this was indeed a sermon. We have an ancient sermon potentially before us. And I would like to just contribute my thought this morning that I think this is a Christmas sermon. It's a joke. Thank you. Uh, I think this is a Christmas sermon. And the reason I think it's a Christmas sermon, the book of Hebrews, is because central to the argument of the book of Hebrews about the superiority of Jesus Christ is the doctrine of the Incarnation. So with these glistening trees in our background, it seems like this is a very appropriate message for this, for this Sunday, to focus upon the essential nature of the Incarnation. And the reason why the Incarnation is so vital, not only to the message of the book of Hebrews, but to all of the Scriptures, the message of the Scriptures as a whole, is because without it, we don't have a biblical view of Christ. Without the doctrine of the Incarnation, we don't really know who Jesus is, who Christ is. The belief that God the Son became man is at the very heart and at the very center of the Christian teaching concerning who is Jesus. And this is why even in the briefest statements of the Christian faith, like you might see in even the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus Christ is the only Son of the Father, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. There's a statement about the Incarnation because it's so vital, it's so crucial, it's so important. And this truth of the Incarnation is, as John Owen put it, the glory of our religion. It is the glory of the church. It is the sole rock upon which it's built and the only spring for present grace and for future glory. That means the incar- everything hinges and depends on the incarnation. But the incarnation is not only vital and essential, but it is also a marvel and a mystery. It is a marvel and a mystery. A marvel because as we meditate upon it and set our minds to task, to muse upon it, our minds are filled with a sense of wonder with a sense of amazement. And we get a dim sense of this this awe, this amazement, this wonder, this marvel. If you've ever seen pictures of the North or South Pole lights, the aurora, you ever seen those things? You get a sense of an awe of this is what God has made, these beautiful light shows that the Lord creates in the, the darkness of the sky. But it's just a dim picture. And it's also, though, a mystery. It's not just a marvel, a wonder. It's a mystery. It's a mystery because our finite minds are not able to comprehend all that it means that God, God, and pack in your mind everything you know about God, God became man 
It is a mystery. And so the apostle Paul says, great is the mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. And so as we think about the incarnation, it is the marvel of marvels, the wonder of wonders. And it is the mystery of mysteries. It is the single most excellent and significant event that has taken place in all of human history. You think of some of the most important events or moments that one might experience in the life of a family. Such things don't get much better than a marriage, right? A wedding. A wedding day. Many of you have either been in a wedding or attended a wedding. Well, think about the couple who's about to be wed. Think of the excitement. Think of the anticipation. Think of the joy and their happiness on that day. But we have in the incarnation a greater wedding day. A greater wedding day. A day in which God the Son wed Himself to humanity forever. And that which God joins together, let no man separate. And on that wedding day, as you sat there in the seats, though, as part of the ceremony and you're watching them, everybody is waiting for one particular moment. You all know what I mean. We want to hear the pronunciation that they're wed, and then we want to see them kiss. We want to see the kiss. Everybody's waiting for the kiss. That's one of the the great things about participating and waiting as you view the wedding. But here in the incarnation, we have a greater kiss. The supreme kiss. What Thomas Goodwin said, we saw in the incarnation. When heaven met earth and kissed one another in the person of God the Son. This is what we have. A greater wedding day and the supreme kiss that took place 2,000 years ago when God the Son took on human flesh, wed himself to humanity for the purpose of our redemption and salvation. And it's in our passage this morning that we're met with not only a statement of the incarnation, but also somewhat of an explanation as to what is its significance for us as the people of God. And that's what we're trying to consider this morning. This is what, or this afternoon, I'm sorry. Uh, it's three. I'm not used to preaching at three. I've already preached an hour beforehand. We did Q&A. I'm a little out of it, so forgive me, okay? Bear with me. Uh, we are going to look at three points today. And, you know, forgive me once again, I have to do alliteration. It's just like this thing I have to do. Uh, I feel like my sermons aren't complete unless there's a little alliteration. So first, the divine person of the incarnation. Secondly, the divine purpose of the incarnation. And thirdly, the divine presence of the incarnation. That's presence with a T. You might say, well, why didn't you just say gifts? Well, because then it would ruin the alliteration. The divine person, the divine purpose, the divine presence, that is the divine gifts, okay? So we're going to consider now the first point, the divine person of the incarnation. Verse 5, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And again in verse 7, then I said, 
Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Well, who's speaking here? Well, we're told in verse 5 that it's Christ. When Christ came into the world, he said these things. But this isn't the first time we're introduced to Christ. This isn't the first time that something of his identity is revealed to us. But we have to go back to the beginning of the book to know the identity of this Christ. And we're introduced to him in chapter 1, verse 1. In chapter 1, verse 1, this is what we read. You can turn there if you'd like to, otherwise I'll read the verse to you. It says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. It's here that we come to learn of the identity of Christ as God the Son. God the Son, the one who is the brightness of his Father's glory and the express image of his person. That is the exact image of his nature. He shares the same divine essence and nature. This is an amazing passage of scripture. I absolutely love this language. He is the brightness of his Father's glory. We would say in one of the, the creeds of the church, he is God from God, light from light. He is God in every way. He has all the attributes of God. Everything that God is, the Son is by nature. And so Jesus says, I and my Father, in John chapter 10, we are one. One in essence, one in nature, the Son, just as infinite, eternal, and immutable God, as the Father is God, and as the Spirit is God, so the Son is true God. It is to the Son, the eternal Word, that the Scripture ascribes creation, that the Son created the world, he created all things. John chapter 1 verse 3. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. And so the one who speaks is our creator. Our creator God. And as God the Son, he is superior to the angels. Who themselves are created beings. And this is what we read in Hebrews chapter 1 as he begins by telling us he's the brightness of his Father's glory, the express image of his nature. He then moves on to say that God made him a little lower than the angels for a period of time. Speaking of the incarnation. But he by nature was the creator of the angels. He was worshipped by the angels. Adored by the angels. We read this in Revelation chapter 5 and in other places in the book of Revelation that the, the, they cry out, Worthy is the Lamb! They cast themselves down before the Son of God and they worship Him. We read in John chapter 12 that the one who Isaiah the prophet saw was actually the Son of God. 
And so this afternoon, you go back and you read Isaiah chapter 6. And you say, the one who they saw was the Son of God. And what do you see in that picture? This brightness of glory shining around. And the cherubim and seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. That's the one who says, He came into the world, a body you have prepared for me. The one whom the angels worship. It's he who speaks in verses 5 through 7. And this is a quotation from Psalm 40. Now, I absolutely love reading the Psalms and thinking about the Psalms because one of the things the Psalms do is reveal Christ to us. They teach us who Jesus is. You learn about Jesus in the Psalms. But what's so amazing about the Psalms, and you see it here in our text, is you don't just hear about Jesus in the Psalms or read about Jesus in the Psalms. In the Psalms, you actually get to hear him speak. We actually get to hear intra-Trinitarian conversations between the Father, Son, and the Spirit in the Psalms. It's amazing. That, that the Holy Spirit opens up the windows of heaven, as it were, so that we might be able to overhear the divine discussion that took place in eternity. And that's what we have here. When he says, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. Who's speaking? The Son of God. And who's he speaking to? The Father. This is a conversation. And the Holy Spirit has recorded it for us in Psalm 40. We have a dialogue between the persons of the Holy Trinity. And Christ says, ah, Behold, I have come. I have come into the world. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I have come down from heaven. And Jesus came down from heaven in such a way that he never left. He descended to earth in such a way that he did not lose any of his deity. He didn't lose something when he came down to earth. He took something upon himself. He filled the the heavens and all the world and at the same time assumed a body. Amazing thoughts. Wonderful thoughts. Marvel of marvel. Mystery of mysteries. That the Son of God did not lose any of his deity when he came to earth, but he took something up. And what he took was a body. A body prepared for him. This is the substance of the incarnation, that God the Son became man. That the immortal God took upon the mortal nature of man. The mortality of human nature and of a body. Now, this word body is a synecdoche, which means it's a part for the whole. And you're all familiar with synecdoches. For instance, if Dennis said, I'm going to count all the heads in the room and give a number at the end of the service, how many heads were in the room? What does that mean? Does that mean that there are only literally heads 
in the room. There are 80 heads today. Well, where were their bodies? No, it's a synecdoche. It's a part for the whole. And so when he says, a body you've prepared for me, that's not to the exclusion of a soul. But a human nature, a body and soul, taken on by the Lord Jesus Christ. A human nature. A reasonable soul and true body. And you think to yourself, what a tremendous condescension of God. What an amazing wonder of wonder, mystery of mysteries, that the infinite God would take upon Himself our finitude. That the Almighty would take upon a humble frame. That the one who is God by nature and, and who by nature is the very height of all being and existence should come in the likeness of men. And he did not just come in the likeness of men and enter a world that was very, very good. How he initially created things. But he has come into a world that is perverse, that is corrupted, that is polluted. He has come into a world that does not adore him, but looks upon him with contempt. For although man draws his very breath from God and is dependent completely upon God for all that he has and for all that he is. Yet we as sinful and fallen men take the good gifts of God, but forget God. We're ungrateful, unthankful, Paul says. This is who we are by nature. Those who chose to cast their lot in with the devil and chose communion with the serpent rather than with God himself. It's into that creation that he descended and dwelt. You see something of this in the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 2, the people of Israel, they say this as they go after their idols. Hosea chapter 2 verse 5, they say, For she said, I will go after my lovers. I will go after these idols. Israel is like an adulterous wife upon the Lord God. And she says, "Who these lovers, these idols, they give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And this is what the Lord says in verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the, gra- the grain, the wine, and the oil. God gives these good gifts to men, and yet they don't recognize him for the, what they've received. They give thanks to themselves. It's because of my strength. It's because of my skill. It's because of my doing. Or they give thanks to a foreign deity, but they don't give thanks to God. And God had every right as the potter to take that broken vessel and throw it in the dustbin. To reject the fallen creation. And yet, although man had rejected his creator, God the creator 
became our Redeemer. Though God was rejected by men, God did not reject his creatures. And so in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. No one forced the Son to become man. It wasn't as if they were taking poles in heaven and said, well, who's going to do it? You know, do you want to do it? I don't really want to do it. The Son did so willingly, freely, joyfully. And so he says, behold, behold, I've come to do your will. Behold, I've come to take up the body that you have prepared for me. And in taking upon our nature, he became true man. He became true man. He took on all of our creatureliness, all of our earthliness. So just as he is God in every way, like unto the Father, he is man like us in every way, only in one way accepted. That is only to the exclusion of one thing. That he committed no sin. He was without sin. He knew what it was to be tired. Some of you say, oh boy, after working some of those long days, I come home, I'm just so white. Jesus knows what it is to be tired. He knew what it was to hunger. He knew extreme hunger as he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness without food. He knew what it was to thirst even at the cross as he takes a drink. He knew what it was to experience happiness. And he knew what it was to experience great sorrows. The smallest verse in all the Bible and one of the most significant, Jesus wept. The Son of God became man and experienced all the emotions of man, yet without sin. He even wept as he saw what sin had done to the good creation that he had made. So that in having our nature, he might be able to, as what the writer to the Hebrews says elsewhere, sympathize with us able to understand our weakness, able to be mindful of our frailty, knowing all of our feebleness as men, and yet still, God became man. He who is the very height of being and all of existence descended and became man. And not man when he was very, very good, but he came into a sinful, corrupted, polluted, fallen world. Well, this is the identity of the speaker in our passage. It's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the divine person who clothed himself in human nature at the appointed time. Taking upon this body, this human nature, this soul and body, this reasonable soul and body in the womb of the Virgin Mary that was prepared for him, planned and prepared by the Father, and fashioned and formed by the Spirit, and accepted and assumed by the Son. But to what end? To what end? To what purpose? Oh, it's such a marvel, such a wonder of the incarnation. 
And it is. But the purpose behind it intensifies the wonder, intensifies the mystery. And that's now what we look on to in our second point, the divine purpose of the incarnation. He united himself with human nature because of this. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you did not have pleasure. What does that even mean? How, how could it be said that God didn't take pleasure in the sacrifices of the Old Testament? Wasn't he the one that ordained them? Wasn't he the one that instituted them? So how could God say that he's not happy with these sacrifices? What does this mean? Well, in order to understand that, we need to read verses 1 through 4 carefully. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so what we read and what we learn is that in the law there was a built-in obsolescence to the Mosaic Covenant. A built-in obsolescence. That is to say, it was designed to become outdated. And all of you are familiar with things that are designed to become outdated. If you're an Apple user and you have an iPhone, you know what I'm talking about. You have something that was designed to be outdated so that you will get the upgrade. They're tricky. Well... It's not just the Apple products that are designed to be outdated, but there is built into the Old Covenant itself a purposeful inferiority to the New Covenant. It was made to lead us to something greater beyond itself. And this is why the sacrifices of old never cleansed or purified the consciences of men for this key reason. They were never ordained for that purpose. That wasn't their design and intent. And it is in that respect, in the respect of the salvation of souls, that God looks upon the bulls and the goats and he says, I have no pleasure in them. They do not satisfy my justice for the forgiveness of sins. These sacrifices created a ritual purity, a ceremonial purity, but they could not purify the soul. And in that sense, God says he found no pleasure in them. Instead, we learn that these sacrifices were a perpetual, continual reminder of sin, a daily reminder. A yearly reminder. It was a token and an evidence to them. Every time they came to the, to the altar, every time they came to the temple and had to bring along the, with them the sacrifices of old, there was a constant reminder over and over, daily, daily, of the presence of sin. It's still, we still haven't escaped it. 
they had a reminder of sin. They were reminded of sin's guilt. They were reminded that what they did was actually a crime against heaven. And that there was therefore a penalty and a punishment, a debt of punishment. A judgment upon them for sin, which was death. And it wasn't just, you know, a peaceful death. It was a very bloody end. And in that bloody end, they saw that's what my sin deserves. It was a reminder that those who practice sin have their lives taken by sin. Sin takes the life of those who practice it. And they had this very bloody reminder of a need for a substitute. They knew it was their sins. But interestingly enough, it wasn't their throat that was slit upon the altar. But it was the animal that they had brought. They realized there was a need for a substitute, that something else, someone else, needed to take their place. They had a a perpetual and constant reminder in the animal sacrifices, an awareness that they themselves were not sufficient to atone for their sin. That something greater had to be provided. And David knew this. And that's why it's no coincidence that David was the one who penned Psalm 40. And who wrote these words. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because David in his life committed two sins. Two sins that David is very well known for. Adultery and murder. And you know, under the sacrificial system, there was no sacrifice for those sins. The penalty was death, and there was no sacrifice, no atonement, no forgiveness, you could say, in the sacrificial system themselves. And yet, in Psalm 51, David says this, in his psalm of repentance. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. You know what the hyssop branch was used for? You dip it in the blood to sprinkle it on the altar. But what blood is there to dip it in if there's no sacrifice for his sin? And see... What you have in Psalm 40 is a recognition from David that there is forgiveness outside of the sacrificial system. There is forgiveness with God. Although the lamb or the bull, the goat might not be my sacrifice, there is a sacrifice with God. There is something going to be provided that will take away sins. And how did he know this? Because David himself tasted forgiveness. David knew he was a forgiven man, but he knew that it was not through the blood of bulls and goats that it happened. And so he knew that there was hope beyond the sacrificial system. He knew there was a greater sacrifice to come. A sacrifice that would not come at the cost of the people. 
It was not a sacrifice that they would bring. But no, we have revealed in the old covenant scriptures, even dimly and in pictures, in black and white, we have revealed to us that this too is the work of God to provide the ultimate sacrifice. This is what you see when Adam and Eve sin and transgress the, the law of God in the garden. It says that the Lord clothed them with tunics of skin. That is, he didn't put leafy greens around them. He clothed them in animal skins. He was showing to us that there needs to be atonement to cover our sin. There needs to be a substitute, and that substitute will not be what you provide, but what he provides. You have the same picture in the akedah, which is the Hebrew word for the binding of Isaac. When Abraham bound Isaac, took him up to the top of the mountain, and he's out ready to plunge the knife into his beloved son, with the hope, we are told in the book of Hebrews, that God would raise him up from the dead, he went to sacrifice him, and the angel stops him. He says, now I know. Now I know you fear me. And when Abraham turned around, we're told that there was a ram in the thicket. And Abraham took that ram and he sacrificed it. And he called that place the place where the Lord provides. Because he learned that it is God who will provide the sacrifice. Abraham was asked to bring his only son, and yet it is the father who sent his only son. We read of these sacrifices of old in verse 1. They were a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the thing itself. You cannot have a shadow without an object. There needs to be an object that casts the shadow. Children, you all know this. Any of you who have ever played shadow puppets, you know, in your room and you got your bunny hopping on the wall, it's the object, it's the body that casts the shadow. There has to be something behind the shadow. A shadow is nothing in itself. It's just the representation of the body. It's, it needs its form and its shape from the body. And you see, we're told that these sacrifices of old were shadows. And they pointed to one peculiar body. One specific body. A body prepared for the Son. They were His shadow. They pointed us to He who was to come. It was to His body that all the sacrifices of old pointed us to. He is the true substance. He is the true body and reality behind the pictures and the types. And in this way, the law becomes a schoolmaster to teach us and lead us to Jesus Christ. The law pointed to the good things to come, but could not accomplish the good things in and of themselves. And so the son took on our human nature, wed himself with humanity, body and soul, that he might do the will of God. We're told in verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. 
What is the will of God? But to keep his word. To be obedient to every precept, to every commandment. Unwavering, unmitigated, perpetual obedience. In thought, in in heart, in mind, and in deed, and in every way. Jesus Christ kept the law of God. But he didn't do it for himself. He did it for you and for me. So that by faith we might receive the righteousness of Christ. That we might be clothed in all of our nakedness. So that we might stand before God on the last day unashamed. Not condemned. But with boldness and confidence. There was a professor of Westminster Seminary many years ago. I think it was back in the 50s. That when he died he wrote in his last letter... Before he died, this was in his very last letter, he said, so thankful for the active obedience of Jesus, referring to the obedience that Jesus did under the law of God, keeping it in our our place. He said, so thankful for the active obedience of Jesus, no hope without it. And that's the reality. Apart from the incarnation, there's no hope. Because apart from the active obedience of the Son, there's no hope. Because all the best of your deeds are but filthy rags. And dung. They'll do no good to save our souls. They're worthless. And so we must come. Naked to you we come for dress. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But he did not only come so that he might obey the will of God in that body, but that also he might come to be a sacrifice, that he might be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, that he might offer it in our nature, in human flesh, willingly and freely. And that's why you read in verses 8 through 10 that God, through this, through the second thing, revoked the first. That through the sacrifice of Christ, all of that which came before is now done away with. It was a perfect sacrifice, a complete sacrifice, an absolute atonement. And so our dying Savior says from the cross, it is finished. And as he said those words, the flame and the fire of Mount Sinai's thunder was quenched, was put out. Justice was satisfied. The record of debt, of your debt, was nailed to the cross. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Forgiveness was accomplished at Calvary. For although with respect to man's soul, the Father looked upon the sacrifices of old and He said, I take no pleasure in them. And yet as He looked upon His Son in human nature, dying and suffering upon the cross, giving Himself freely and willingly, He looked upon the Son and He said, Behold, my beloved Son, the one in whom I am well pleased. The one 
in whom I am well pleased. The one who has accomplished all this, not for himself, but for you and for me. Wonder of wonders. Mystery of mysteries. That man who substituted himself in the place of God in the pursuit of sin. Because that's what we do. We substitute ourselves for the place of God when we pursue sin. Serving lust, serving passion, serving vice, serving self, and not God. Man who substituted himself in the place of God for sin finds himself the one who has a substitute in God the Son to take his place, to bear his sin, to be his Savior. Wonder of wonders, mystery of mysteries. Bernard of Clairvaux said, What a wonder, what a marvel that he who made the world in six days and man within those six days would become man and then live upon this earth for over 30 years in order to redeem, in order to save his people. Why was it that he didn't just come down, do the sacrifice, obey the law, and all be done in one quick moment? Why did he do it over so many years? But to show us his infinite mercy, his infinite grace, his infinite love. To be to you an unquestionable token. You say, does God really love sinners? You can't look upon Christ and not see the tremendous grace and love of God in Jesus Christ. And will not this sacrifice, will not the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, both in his active obedience to the law of God and in his passive obedience and suffering upon the cross, will this not move your stony heart? Will it not warm the flame within you? Will it not arouse you to obedience, to worship? Will it not cause you to throw yourself down before God and say, Oh Lord, forgive me, forgive me a sinner for how I've neglected your word, for how I've neglected your grace. Oh, empower me by your Holy Spirit that I might live to you each moment, that every breath and every particle of me would be devoted to you, O God, for you are worthy, O Lamb. Would this not move us to greater obedience, greater love, and greater worship as we fill our minds with the contemplation that God the Son became man for our redemption? But he also, in coming and being the sacrifice, also presents gifts. He presents presence. And so we look now to our last point, the divine presence, that is with a T, of the incarnation. The divine presence of the incarnation. There are many presents, many gifts that he gives, but I want to focus just on two that we see here in this text. First, notice with me verse 2 once again. 
He said, otherwise there would have not, uh, would they not have ceased, these animal sacrifices, would they not have ceased since the worshippers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Had the sacrifices purified them, they would no longer have a consciousness of sin. That is to say, that the sacrifice of the old covenant could not purify the conscience. They could clean the body, maybe. They could wash you externally and ceremonially. But they could not penetrate to the heart. Only the sacrifice of Christ can penetrate to the heart. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse the conscience and give you a freedom in your mind and heart of the penalty of sin. Through the better sacrifice of Christ, we receive a pure conscience. We're given spiritual peace with God. And there is an objective reality that we have peace with God and then an experiential reality that we come by the ministry of the Spirit to know that we have this peace. He puts gladness within the heart of the Christian, joy within the heart of the Christian, puts a song within their mouth because they have a pure conscience through the sacrifice of Christ. So he says in Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? The blood of Christ cleanses the conscience. We're given a clean conscience, an unsoiled conscience, a conscience that is not under the terror of the law and of the judgment of God, but a conscience that is free. And the more that we set our eyes upon the slain lamb who is in heaven, the more that we'll experience that purity of conscience. The more we, we fill our minds and hearts with the love of God which he has demonstrated towards us in Christ, the more that love fills your mind and heart, the more it casts out fear and worry of judgment. So he gives to us a clean conscience. The second thing that he presents to us is this perfection or this sanctification that we read of. In verse 14, For by a single offering he has for all time sanctified or perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now this word sanctification is not used in the way that we usually think of it in terms of progressive growth in grace and sanctification. But rather it refers to being consecrated to God, set apart to God, made holy unto God, devoted unto Him. The blood of Christ sets you apart to be His. Because in man's sin and in man's rebellion, man took himself and devoted himself to the service of his own lusts. And therefore he was under the wrath and judgment and damnation. But in our redemption through the sacrifice of Christ, we are entrusted unto God. We're set apart unto Him for Him to be our inheritance, for us to be His people. And this is what we're given through Christ, a sanctification. But we're also given perfection, and this refers to being restored to God. 
An object reaches its perfection, its perfect state, when its design and purpose for which it was made comes to fulfillment. And we were made for communion with God. We were made to be his and for he to be ours. And now, through the sacrifice of Christ, we have been perfected. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have been reconciled unto him. We are now forgiven of all sin. Sin past and present. Sin original and sin actual. The sin of Adam and all the sin that you bring. There is a great picture in marriage. To go back to marriage for a moment. There's a great picture in marriage of justification and forgiveness of sin. Because as the husband comes and the wife comes, the two come, whatever is hers is his. Whatever is his is hers. And Martin Luther loved to use this illustration in teaching justification. Because when we come and are wedded to Christ, we bring all our sin. And Jesus takes upon our sin. And he, as our bridegroom, bestows upon us his righteousness. It becomes ours. And so we're pardoned, forgiven, reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we have here in the incarnation our rock, our refuge. Here is our trust. That the Son of God became man that he might reconcile us to God. This is our hope. This is our salvation. And as John Owen said, this is the anchor on which our faith rests. Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. Would you bow with me as we pray? Oh Lord God, we do come before you and ask that you would take your word and bless it to our hearts. Apply to each one according to their need, O oh Lord. Would you fill our hearts and minds with a sense of the weightiness of our sin? but also fill us, O God, with a sense of your great grace. And help us, O Lord, even this Lord's Day, to set our minds in consideration of the marvel and the mystery of the Incarnation. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.